definitely want to welcome you guys to um, another edition of, um, well, this is probably our first one on New Jack Swing podcast. And um, it's, uh, yeah, myself and Sheldon Taylor. How are you guys doing? <laughs> yeah, okay. So we've, um, yeah, so today, you know, one of the things that we wanted to really focus on is the, you know, one of my favorite albums, I think, you know, is the um, 1987 Keith Sweat debut album, Make It Last Forever. Um, one of the things that, that um, I definitely love about the album is this, it's strange, it's just um, five, eight songs, less than 50 minutes long. And it just seems so rare because when we got into the 90s, people were having nine, you know, eight to 16 tracks and stuff like that. But this reminds me of how, you know, they did Thriller, you know, just eight songs and let's make sure we get the best. Um, you know, even, you know, just got paid, couldn't even make the album just because like, look, we just don't have any room. Um, but later on, I, you know, I want to be able to go through um, our top five uh, songs, you know, there's three that are not going to make it. Um, but yeah, Shannon, what what are your thoughts um, on, on 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 make it last forever? Um, that's a good um, preface uh, that you <laughs> provided um, pertaining to the album. When you talked about um, there were eight songs compared to um, '90s records and records that are made later or CDs and whatnot, um, where they were like 15, 16, 20 songs. And the best way um, to look at that is I would say make it last forever is an example uh it's quality over quantity mm. that's the best way to put it because back then cds were just coming into production they started to come in production right around 1985 1986 but people were still buying albums and cassettes mm. and obviously when you're dealing with vinyl there's only so many so there's only so many songs that you can put um, on a vinyl record without turning it into a double album. Okay. Um, when you look at Make It Last Forever, even though it's the cornerstone, the jump off of New Jack Swing, uh, as well as as well as Keith's uh, career, that album is made in the vein of records that were crafted in the 1980s. Uh, when you listen to Make It Last Forever, there are a lot of components to that album that are absent in the contemporary music that comes after it. Mm. Um, you hear distinctive intros yeah. on each song. Well, first of all, Make It Last Forever is song-driven. Mm. Each song has its distinct identity. It stands on its own. And like I just said briefly, yeah. um, there are distinct intros. There are um, extended breakdowns. Um, the songs have a tendency that they're able to breathe. Yeah. When you look at later production, everything is drum loops and samples, they're loops. So the songs don't are not necessarily fleshed out. And when you listen to Make It Last Forever, uh, the songs breathe, like I said, but compared to records that are made now or coming after Make It Last Forever, it's like whoever's producing those records, they are a little bit afraid of what what you would call dead space. When you listen to radio, yeah, everything is constantly um, interaction. There's no dead space. You either got commercials, you got music, you got the DJ talking. Well, if you could look at the contemporary productions coming out, late 80s, early 90s, um, you hear people talking in the beginning, 
of the record. Oh, oh, you know, just a lot of ad libs and whatnot. And it's almost a way of kind of filling um, empty spaces um, of the music. Because again, younger producers are hearing the music a little bit differently. But back uh, at the time when Make It Last Forever was made, it was made in the, in the vein of R&B records that were lush. Again, they had uh, extended intros. They had breakdowns. The music would come in. It may have a reach a certain uh, tempo, um, a certain dramatic um, elevation. It would come down and the record would just phase out. Yeah. You know, and when you look at Keith Sweat's Make It Last Forever, it's kind of one of the final um, R&B albums that are made in that vein. There are a few more um, that are created by mature artists, but by the time definitely 89, 90 rolls around, um, the production component kind of changes. So even though Teddy is making a lot of these beats in his house and the projects, you hear that record. And even though the, the sound is much leaner than the R&B records that are coming out before it, you still can hear ingredients of what's out at the time. So when you ever listen to Alexander O'Neill's um, Hearsay, which dropped in 87, which made him um, mm. the only Black artist to sell out the Hammersmith Odeon seven consecutive nights. Wow. Alexander O'Neill is a big star. He was a big star in England. He yeah, listened yeah. to Freddie, Freddie Jackson's album uh, just like the first time. It puts him on track to be uh, one of the first artists to have like seven consecutive number one albums, seven consecutive number one singles. Wow. Listen to just like the first time. And you hear the songs, you hear the consistency. Each song has its own identity, but the production is still unified. And then you listen to Luther Vandross records, uh, Give Me the Reason. Um, the Night I Fell in Love, these records dropped in 1985, 1986. You know, these four albums really made Luther Vandross, Alexander O'Neill, Freddie Jackson, they were like R&B kings. And of course, they were a little bit old, young, older than Keith. Yeah. So their approach to music was a little bit different, but Keith's music comes out of that same vein. So even though he's going toward a younger sound, it's still created. Um, in the vein of the records that are coming out in the 80s. But then during the time when, when those three were coming out, who were the kids of the, you know, when you think of what New Jack Swing brought out, what were they listening to then, you know, before hip hop and, and, and sort of making a lot of guy and, 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 new, and new and stuff? What were they listening to? Okay. What were well, people I, listening I, to? Yeah. I was a younger, I was a youth in that area. Again, I was born in 1968. So when these records are coming out, Alexander O'Neill, Freddie Jackson, Luther Vandross, you know, I'm 16, 17 years old. So what we're listening to is we're listening to everything that's on the radio because there aren't any young artists with the exception of a new edition. They're prominent, um, but really the mature adult R&B artists are the ones who are dominating. There are no young artists. And we're either, either listening to that, whether we're hearing it in our parents' record collections, we're hearing it on the radio, we're watching Soul Train, or we're listening to rap music. So there is no R&B immediate component until later, until you see start seeing Guy and everybody else who's coming after. Wow. So there are no young artists 
just like it's, it's it's infested with young artists after you know going into 90 89 90 yeah yeah, yeah you know changed, but yeah. r&b is an adult affair but keep in mind you know an r&b artist like a freddie jackson luther vandross um alexander o'neill these people are at the time 86 87 rolls around they're 34 35 36 years old so when you're 34 35 36 years old in the 80s it's different from being 34 35 36 years old now because it's almost like you it, it kind of skew young because youth culture is pretty dominant so it's almost as if a person that's 34 35 36 they could be 21 when you hear the music, you see the look. But back then, they were grown men. They were grown men back then. So um, anybody that was 21, you know, early 80s, 70s or whatever, you were a full-fledged grown man. These people had kids. They raised families and all of that. So it was totally different to how everything is skewed young, 88, 89, 90, as it starts to go on beyond that. So it's a different, it's a mature approach. So when I look at those albums and the music that encapsulates that period, mm. I call it Champagne and Roses R&B, where Keith Sweat comes on, he rocks the boulevard and the boudoir, you know, the boulevard and the bedroom, because the beats are harder, the sound is leaner, it's kind of more aggressive, even though it's still made in the same vein of what's coming out before. So, I mean, I, I listened to... Um, Babyface and even LA Reid on Questlove and um, and and they said that when Keith when that I Wanna came out that Babyface and he said it he said it in other interviews that it he just like wow he thought that they'd been dead done that you know that what that song almost felt like if we need to reinvent ourselves because this was just something they've never heard before and they got in touch with Jimmy and Terry like who's this Teddy kid. The, the producer, who's this person? Because they were, he, it's almost as if Teddy came out from Noah with the Keith Sweat stuff and they wanted to see who's this guy who's just come out with something new and something different. And, 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 and I, and I do wonder because the way Teddy tells it is as if he was done with RB, he wanted to focus on hip hop and he got begged into doing RB, but he did something that it was that sort of got all the established producers to, to, to take notes. And, and you listen to the song, it doesn't seem to fit the uh, Make It Last Forever. It doesn't seem to fit into the, uh, the 80s genre. It feels more late 80s, but when you think of 87 and I Wanna, it just seems so innovative. You know, when we listen to Timberland and the Neptunes doing stuff and like, wow, this is, this is different, this beat. That's how it looked like back then. It just felt like no one was doing this. Um, it, it felt like there was a groove and it was just fun and funky. Um, you know, people talk about Janet's Control album, but I think it was very, the, the Control album was heavily influenced by, you know, Prince and, and the Times and that Minnesota sound, which I, I, I personally don't didn't like as much, you know, that, that type of, of stuff. So it was completely different to what Teddy and, 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 and I wanted to do. Can you remember when I Wanna came out on the radio? What was your initial yeah. thoughts? It was, it, it was different. Um, everything that you're saying is definitely on point because 
everything before it. First of all, you always, you got to look at numbers. And Teddy is anywhere from 12 to 15 years younger than Jam and Lewis, LA and Babyface. So that makes a lot of difference because Teddy is a child of rap music. And like anyone else, you know, R&B music is also on his radar because he talks about playing in bands. But mm -hmm. he's a person that grows up um, in New York. And, yeah, you're hearing R&B records and things. But he's coming up in rap music. There, there's, an, there's an interview that Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis did um, about New Jack Swing. And they always say that control in a way, was the first New Jack Swing record in terms of the heavy beats that they that they were doing. But they said the only difference, and then there's another record that came out by a producer, by, by Levert, it was called Casanova. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that record came out in 87. So these two records, sometimes people kind of point as early versions of New Jack Swing. But Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis were saying that we kind of were ahead of the curve because Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, their productions feature the 808 drum machine. If you go back and listen to a lot of productions they did with SOS Band and everyone else, they were using the 808 drum machine. Prior to that, you had the Oberheim DX7, you had the Lin drum sounds that's associated with a lot of Prince records and whatnot. They started using the 808 um, drum machine. And the 808 drum machine was very influential and it kind of rerouted the sound of R&B in the mid 80s because um, a group from the UK, Loose Ends, would yeah. utilize that same 808 drum sound and little, I don't say friction, but when Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis first heard it, they were like, well, hey, these guys are utilizing our sound. But yeah, fast loose forward, ends. yeah, loose ends, yeah. Fast forward, they're looking at Teddy because this sound, this sound is the sound of the future. Because they're wondering, you know, how is it coming about? Because it's stripped down, it's lean, it's not a lot of excess. The sound is simple, but the groove is funky. But mm -hmm. remember, LA and Babyface, they come out of a band situation, multi-instruments. They're playing instruments. Mm -hmm. How they're making music, their way of composing music is totally different from what everybody is doing after the fact in terms of crafting melody, the way they're writing songs. So it's not when we're making beats. We're literally working it out in the studio. Of course, one of your future interviews um, pertaining to a subject that you're going to talk about later, the person you said their name, he's affiliated with LA and Babyface. Mm. He can give you that insight. But those guys are making records in a different way. They're making records in a conventional way that music has always been created up until make it last forever, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. So that sound is foreign to them because they're wondering how is it being made? And they would have never known that these records are made in the projects. So when I'm hearing the record, I'm hearing the rhythm. I'm like, this is like totally different because the Minneapolis sound is extremely, that's the dominating sound, it's extremely popular. And, but this record has a rhythm it lean, it's lean, of course it swings, but it's leaner and it's different. So when I first heard it, I can tell something was coming around the corner. I didn't know what it was, but after listening to 
whatever the musical style or musical evolution that R&B was headed um, throughout the 80s, 87, this record was totally different. And I heard it alongside Kumo D's How You Like Me Now. So uh, yeah, even, yeah. Rap mu even rap music was kind of like changing too. So it was like, wow, this isn't something I was out two, three, four, five years before. So really, when you look at Make It Last Forever, um, it symbolizes a young person's approach to music. So when you look at that, and for Keith to be, because he's older than Teddy, he's just, you yeah. know, at least five or six years older than Teddy. Yeah. And Keith comes out of the 70s and 80s vibe of music, you know, he's, he's born in somewhere around the 60s, you know, but he's a teenager in the seventies. So he's growing up around the golden age of soul music, blue magic, the Delphonics, the OJs, the Ozzy brothers, you know, and all of that is in his DNA. So that's mm -hmm. driving that. That's why when you listen to make it last forever, we're going to talk about those songs that is in the vein of that. So it's a combination of old and new, mm -hmm. but it starts with, the sonics, it starts with the sound. So the difference between what Teddy was doing and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and all the rest of those guys, it was just a different mental approach because they looked at it somewhat as a style. Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis always said that we made a similar record with Control, but the only thing that we did is we did it in that style and we did it and we then we moved on to something else while Teddy stayed with that sound. But again, these guys are musicians. You know, they play all types of instruments and they're coming out of bands. Of course, Teddy mm -hmm. comes out of a band, but he's much younger. So their thing is we're doing a style, we're dealing with dealing with the sound, and we move on to the next record. That's why when you listen to Janet Jackson, Janet Jackson's records, each record doesn't sound the same. Yeah. It's a different vibe with each record. So it's it's just the creative approach that the older producers um are following or utilizing compared to what Teddy's doing. So it's a raw, it's a lean record. Yeah. You know? I mean, and it's if, also, go ahead, mm, go ahead. No, no, I wanted to just even start off with like um, going through the tracks because a lot of people might look, <clears throat> as we said, it was just eight songs. <clears throat> and I think one of my favorite songs on it, on it is something uh, just ain't right. And it's probably the intro that really gets me. You know, um, just and I've heard Teddy say that he had to, because his fingers couldn't reach, he had to get, do get a long uh, keyboard and and just to, to scale it all the way down. But for me, that's just a, you know, you get to see an album, whether it's tape or a record, and you you start off with an intro with the keyboard, the key just going in 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 like that, and um, and it's it is almost like borrowing from from some James Brown that type of funky type of let's get a bit of James Brown let's just get a bit of Parliament and let's just make it um, just make it bang in in, in the club um, as opposed to what might have been out there before. So, what are your thoughts about something just ain't right? Well, something just ain't right, and we're on the same path because I was listening to the album before uh, we got on today. And it's in the same vein. When you listen to something ain't just ain't right, we start to see he kicks off with the shimmery keyboard riff that kicks off the record. But when you look at great records, mm -hmm. 
they always have a unique intro so that you know it when you first hear it. And when you and so that so when you look at Make It Last Forever, the fact that you're kicking off with something just ain't right, you got the keyboard riff or whatever, and it just goes on. That's that's how you're supposed to do it. You you you, you put out the first song and it catches you. Mm. You know, if you look at a lot of contemporary productions, it's just got the beat, it, it loops, but you got the the riffs that kick off. And then before Keith even starts singing, you know, there's a few bars where the music is playing. You hear the keyboard work. Mm. And then he jumps in. So, but when you look in terms of black music, um, post-1989, post-1990, um, that's how black music was. You know, up-tempo black music, they had great bass lines. Uh, they had great rhythms. They had unique sounds that kicked the record off because, again, radio was the main component, the, mm -hmm. the media component to um, display your record, to showcase your record. So you had to have sounds that separated from whatever else was out there. So it's, a, it, it's, it's great how they kicked the record off because it, the record, it lets you know what's about to happen. And it's an, it catches your ear and the rhythms are there. And then Keith Sweat goes into the first lyric and he's saying, tossing, turning girl, just can't sleep at night. Ooh, you've been cheating on me. <laughs> and that's, that's basically, that's the synopsis of the song. So he's giving you the whole song right there. And then the storytelling is there. So unlike, you know, contemporary records, that's a lost art. Mm. They just they just write to the track and they just sing along with it or whatever. But Key Sweat, the lyrics, they jump right in at you. And yeah. it's something that you can really catch. It's catchy. You can hold on to it. And back then, that's what R&B records were about. Like now we talk about stuff is we're trying to, you know, uh, monetize it and blow it up and all that. But the biggest thing was coming out um, with with great music and music that could identify with the person who was listening to it. And that's why, you know, that song really resonates. The album resonates with people. Yeah. And so the second one was um, Right in the Wrong Way. And and I didn't realize that, that was Tammy Lucas said that she sang background on that. But on the, unfortunately, she was not credited. Um, she's not credited being on it. But she said that she that she sang the she was the back female background vocalist on that track and um that's another one of my favorite even though it's the second track uh, in the um because it didn't feel like i don't know if it's it didn't there was i don't believe there was any elements of sampling in that but it's um it was when this is keith you know first showcasing his his ability to sing a slow song but telling a story you um you're not, um, you're not a little girl anymore. I mean, it just, it was, you know, it, it, it you could hear what he's singing about. I mean, this is what we have our grief with R&B now. And even in the nineties where you can barely make out what that, what the story is. But when you listen to right and wrong way, it's almost like he, it's like a poem, but very clear and distinctive. So you know what has been said and you got the people at the background joining in almost like, yes. And like, you know, almost like a play. Almost like you're mm -hmm. watching, listening to a Shakespeare play and you have those who are, are supposed to be in agreement with you with the background singers. What, what's your thought on right in the wrong way? You know, another uh, great song um, 
continues the excellent sequencing on the album. Right in the wrong way. Like you said, it's very vivid, very visual. It's like a poem, but you know, obviously the storyline is is that um, the woman that he's with, it's now she's they're about to their relationship is about to go to the next level. Mm-hmm. And at this point right now, he's he's painting a picture um, and she's a young lady. But now it's about the time to go to the next level um, in their relationship. And he's kind of painting that picture. It's very seductive. Mm-hmm. The music, the sound, the, the, the storyline, his performance is very, uh, very seductive. And but it's at the same time it's romantic at the, it's it's yeah. romantic at the same time, and the background vocals are a major component to that record because prior to the records that are coming out um, in the '90s, background vocals were critical. They were critical components to records. Mm-hmm. Background singing was in was a major art. There were people who made their living doing background vocals and they made an excellent living out of it because back then music was made in the studio it wasn't it wasn't really quick they didn't make it in their bedroom music was made in the studio and background singers worked out the background arrangements mm-hmm. that was a key element to the music of course you had to know how to be able to sing on key and it wasn't about overshadowing the artist but it was about giving that record a lot of flavor Mm. And it was, and it complimented right in the wrong way because Keith is singing and you got everyone else, the call and response. Mm. So when you hear that call and response, they're backing him up. That's an R&B tradition. It goes back to call and response um, back in the slavery time where they would sing and the people would yeah. sing and follow along with them. So it, the whole gospel call and response. So you see elements of traditional R&B components in that record. And they're backing him up, and he's 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 singing the lyrics, and of course he talked. I saw an interview now is that that type of record would kind of be be skewed in a different way now in the Me Too era because it's almost like older man, <laughs> younger woman. Yeah, yeah, but back yeah. then, you know, people weren't thinking like that. It was just that okay, you know, it's time to go ahead and go to the next level. You're not a little girl. Mm. You're my woman. And then at the end, when he says, you're a big girl now, no more daddy's little girl. (laughs) What he's doing, he's making a reference to a stylistics record that came out um, in 1968, 1969, a very first record. It's called You're a Big Girl Now. And the hook is, you're a big girl now. You're not a little girl. No more daddy's little girl. That's the so basically he's bringing that back. He's dropping into his records. Remember I told you earlier, Keith Sweat is coming up in the '70s where the mm. high falsetto singers, the stand-up groups, the Blue Magic stylistics. He drops that in there, right. so it's like a it's like a nod mm. to the past. Yeah. So yeah. So it's wow. really almost an update of "You're a Big Girl Now." So when you go back. And listen to the stylistics. Um, you're a big girl now. The lyrics are kind of the same, and it kind of it's not necessarily sexual, but what he's talking about 
No more pigtails in your hair. Um, no more dolls for you to play with. <laughs> you know, that type of thing like that. And it's kind of almost an update of that record. So you got to listen to that stylistic record and you'll kind of get an idea where I'm coming from. Okay. Next one was uh, Tell Me It's uh, Tell me, it's Me You Want. Um, I think the production actually has um, a big say um, in this, you know, just hearing, because when you look at the credits of the CD, it has Teddy as the programming keyboards and, 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 and drumming and drums. So you can tell that he's playing his keyboards throughout um, that particular track. And one thing Teddy kept saying, he's not really, even though he plays the keyboard, he's not a piano, he's not like a Jimmy Jam of a piano player, right. but he, but he right. does, he, but he seems to be funky on the keyboards, even though he doesn't, he doesn't give himself credit to be a great musician, but in that you could tell. Well, what he's saying is that he's not a musician or keyboardist in the traditional sense of maybe a Duke Ellington, a Stevie Wonder. He plays enough. He understands drum programming and everything else, but he's musical enough to where the songs are interesting and the songs really stand apart from what's happening with the other new Jack Swing records that are, that are, that are competing or that are along the same lines of what he's doing. Everybody's kind of copying him. His The keyboards give his music um, a lot of warmth. If you listen to some of the records he did with outside productions, you listen to some of the keyboard riffs, um, it's, it has a warm sound and people kind of copy that. So mm -hmm. when you listen to a high five record, she's playing hard to get. And you hear those, those those keyboard riffs and the harmonizing, that's straight out of the Teddy Riley arrangement songbook. You know, so when you listen to that, tell me it's me you want, it's very warm. You hear the keyboard riff is there, and then it comes in, and then you hear the um the drum patterns and whatnot. And it's great because it's not over the top. Yeah. It's just basic, but what happens is it gives Keith you know, the platform to go ahead and do his thing. It's a great record. Yeah. It, 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 it's almost an example where it's less is more. Yeah. That's very restrained. True. Very restrained. And then we go to the big one, which is I, I Want Her. And um, it, it when you compare it with all Teddy's sort of New Jack tracks, you know, whether it's Groove Me or um, My Prerogative my, or Just Got Paid, My Prerogative seems to always come up for Trump's, but um, I, I won as one of the first times we, I think the first time we ever heard Teddy say, yep, yep. And we hear, we, we, with the first time, and I don't know, I, I don't have this knowledge, but it's one of the first times I noticed a producer in the background talking. So now, you know, we, we've got producers nowadays, but you know, Timberland, um, Pharrell, um, um, Rodney, a dark child, um, you'd hear them even J Jermaine Dupri, you'd hear them at the back, you know, on the records, like, yeah, talking or, yeah, uh, and stuff. But this is the first time, 87, where I'm, I couldn't think about of a producer throughout the whole stuff, yeah, just chanting and talking and, and, and adding it in there. And I don't know how, if people noticed or thought or said anything about the fact that, wait, who's this kid, who's this guy talking throughout the, the you know, the track and it must be co-singing, featuring on the, on the record. When you look at that, um, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis were doing that before. Oh, they I'm going to send you some records offline, and you will see. 
they were kind of like early guys doing that because their production was animated. First of all, they came out of the time, the group. And the whole visual component, I mean, they were huge. They were almost, when you look at like producers in the forefront, yeah. um, but I mean forefront in the music videos and all of that, they were doing that oh. th three, four years before Teddy. If you see Janet Jackson doing um, her videos, they're playing next to her, you know, and, and one of the things that people knew who they were because they knew them from the time. So you see them, they got the suits and the hats yeah, and the yeah. sunglasses. But were they, they singing, were they on, were they were vocally on vocals on the record? They had background singers. Yes. They had background singers, um, specifically one, um, I forgot her name, Lisa Keith was one. They had a whole, like their own, like the equivalent of a GR situation. Yeah. They had a whole flight time production of singers and songwriters and background singers so they had their own in-house vibe but I'm you wouldn't hear terry or jimmy on a record saying go on janet and yeah just you know but 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 they were doing their own and i'm gonna not on janet record but they were doing it on alexander o'neill's records if you listen to the record they might not be in the videos doing it but on the records they're laughing they're joking uh, you know when and i'm gonna send you some records and you're gonna see it <laughs> So they were kind of like before Teddy doing that, but I can understand where you're coming from because when you're hearing Teddy do that or make it on um, I Wanna, yeah. you know, it's, it's strange because you got producers here and you got singers here and they don't necessarily merge yeah. where you got them being out in the forefront as if they were an artist. But I think, because one, he made the records and it was, first of all, the record comes out on the independent label. He makes the records in his house, you know, so it kind of breaks away. He's a young guy. Yeah. So he, he his hands are not tied by the whole conventional, traditional industry situation where, hey, this is how you're supposed to make a record. Because yeah. it's really him and Keith, they got some background singers, they got some other musicians or whatever. So you know, you come out and Keith has control over how to make the record. So I don't think it's some sort of grand scheme. I think it's just organic. It's yeah, not it contrived, just, it, it's yeah. just organic. But what happens is, as time goes on, it's a signature because now you're starting to see a shift to where the producer's starting to be out front. So their signature components that kind of establish him to let you know he's the guy that made the record. But during that time, there was no grand scheme of this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to conquer the music world. He's just in there working. Yeah, because, he, I mean, now, we, we, you know, we, we, we expect to hear Timberland, you know, doing that in every record he does. Or Rodney would, you know, I've seen, listened to a number of his stuff. Dark Child. And he, yeah, Dark Child and, you know, DC, you know, what, what is with Destiny Child? He'll always, he'll almost get him up. Um, will I Am will do the same thing. Wyclef, they would all talk in, in the middle of the record just to, you know that you know I'm I'm here getting you know Jermaine Dupri would do it, but as I said, but that's, in eight but that's Teddy. What it is, and you got to give Teddy credit is that because again, those guys are kind of young for everything else coming before. I'm not saying they don't they don't they don't hear it, they don't know about it. But Teddy is the main guy that influences cats as producers for them to be in the forefront, mm -hmm. the, the ad libs and all of that stuff. That's yeah. that's clearly out of his vein, but he's also an extension of something that happened before. Okay. And I can't yeah. say that he copied it, but it's just the simple fact that he's doing what he's doing during that time. So that's why when you listen to LA and Babyface and Jimmy and Terry, 
um, they're hearing the music and they're hearing what it is, and it's it's totally different. Yeah. Now we we, we track number five is you know the the I think the biggest song on the album, which is "Make It Last Forever," which uh, with Jackie McGee, and um, it's it's you know it's I don't know. I mean, so if you think back to that time and what type of impact did this song do? Was it different than what was out there? And what made this song "Make It Last Forever" different than what was out there to, to, to be such a a classic, enduring hit? Well, the song itself, um, the music obviously was great. The lyrics were superior because it captured the dynamic between Keith and Jackie. But when you look at them as a duet, you know they come in the tradition of R&B duets, Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell, Rick James and Tina Marie. So it's not foreign to listeners when they hear it because we're used to R&B duets, but I love how Jackie sang the record. Her performance was great because it wasn't like um, a back and forth situation. It was very seamless. Mm. You know, how they did the record, how she sang on the record, because Keith is singing, she's singing. And, but the lyrics, are, the lyrics are perfect because it captured the dynamic and the chemistry. They had excellent chemistry together. Yeah. And it's a cornerstone of the record. I credit Keith because he, can, he continues the tradition of the male-female duet. When you look at that Make It Last Forever album, you've got up-tempos, you've got ballads, it's funky, you've got duets, and it's all on one album. Um, and it's that was common for 80s and 70s R&B records and whatnot. But the great thing is, is that he got an unknown artist. But at that time, he was, he was kind of unknown himself. Yeah. So you got two unknowns on the record, and the chemistry... It's great. Um, beautiful, beautiful song. The lyrics. Um, you listen to the the record. It has this nice thump, this nice groove to it. The, the, the remix is great. Um, excellent record. But it captures the chemistry between them and lyrics. Mm. Lyrics, I think, are the centerpiece of that record. Because yeah. when he's, he, he's singing to her. Yeah. That's the thing. So if you are a female listening to that record, you can envision a man speaking to you like that. If you're a male listening to the record, you can envision what she would say to another person. Mm. The record is extremely romantic yeah. as well. The um, track number six is In the Rain, and this is the first one that Keith didn't write. Um, somebody called Tony Hester was credited as the writer, but it was one of the first times um, we, we get to really fully hear Teddy on the vocoder which he really just took, um, I'm trying to remember, did he do it to voice code on the Guy album? I don't think I heard him on the Guy album. There's elements, um, it might be a vocoder, vocoder on the Guy album, but that's the first time you hear him yeah. actually do it. Because keep in mind, before him was Roger Troutman, and Roger Troutman and Zap, he did yeah. a record called Computer Love. Yeah, yeah. And he's doing the vocoder. That's the first time you hear vocoder on on an R and B record. That's um, 
on the black side. Now, before that, there was a, like a mid-tempo balladish um, rock record by a rock British rock performer named Peter Frampton. Okay. And he would actually use the vocoder. This is back in 77. But um, you saw the vocoder popping up um, on certain records in the mid 80s after Roger was coming. Roger and Zap was doing it mm -hmm. or when and Fire was doing it. So it was when you look at this vocoder on a ballad, you know, that's a Roger Chapman brainchild right there. Okay. On the black side, on the R&B side. So, you know, Teddy is kind of, you know, bringing that Roger element to it. But I have to let you know that In the Rain is a remake. Oh, that's It's why a I remake to the Dramatics record that came out roughly around um, 1971, 72, 73. It was called In the Rain. Okay. And I have to send you that song. So again, remember... Keith is a teenager mm. during all of these soulful records by these stand-up R&B groups that are coming out. So In the Rain is him once again taking something old, dropping it in a new thing that he's doing. So when he's doing it, you hear the thunderstorms and the, and the rain yeah, in the yeah, background. Yeah. The original version of The Rain kicks off with a thunderstorm in the beginning. So it's Keith doing, it's Keith doing a remake. But once again, He's bringing, he's dropping the old into the new. Now, at the time when that record had come out, or when I first heard the album, I was about 17, 18, or 18, and I didn't realize, I had heard The Rain, mm. remember The Rain, but I didn't realize it was a remake, you know, for a couple of years. And I was like, oh, wow. But you got to hear that song so you can kind of see the similarity. So he's dropping a remake. So that's what makes Make It Last Forever so unique and so great. Because you have all of these components of what was out before, and it's all wrapped up into a new sound. Mm. And then we get into track seven, which is um, How Deep Is Your Love? And Teddy then continues to use a vocoder in mm -hmm. that as well. Actually, almost almost like his own version of Computer Love, because it's... Yes, it's, yeah. yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, what, yes. What, what are your thoughts of, of, of that one? Again, you know, there's a lot of simplicity going on um, with those songs. It's not a lot of overkill. You don't. There's no horns, you know. Even the background vocals with mm -hmm. some of these records, there it's very restrained. Even though the background vocals are high in the mix, something that's kind of disappears with future contemporary R&B of the '90s. But it's the simplicity of it. Yeah. Um, it really stands out. So it's just. You know, Keith and Teddy, Teddy doing this thing or whatever, but it's a great showcase for Keith vocally and lyrically. Mm. And of course, he's singing these songs in the first person. And when you're writing song lyrics and you're doing them in the first person, it can it has the ability to, to transport um, someone who's listening to the record. It transports them into the song. So mm. he says, "Been all day thinking, all night wondering." Why love has to change. You kiss me, but it's not real. So that's like a conversation, <laughs> you know? So, but, and, and that's one of the things that he's able to do. If you listen to the whole album, he's able to encapsulate himself into these different situations. So one, he's pursuing a woman. I want to, and he's a victim of heartbreak and cheating, all the whole dimensions of romance, you know? And that's very important. And that gives that record 
um, that album, Staying Power. Yeah. That a lot of records, they kind of fall through the cracks and they were great for their time, but, you know, it but it has the ability to conjure up emotions that people may have had when they first heard the record. You can dance to the record. Yeah. You know, you can be with your lady with the record. You can just play it straight through. And then you said eight songs. Eight songs, yeah. Less than the albums minutes, yeah. that had right. The albums with the least amount of songs that you can play it, and before you know it, you can't believe it's over. Yeah. Think about Anita Baker's Rapture, same situation, eight records. Uh, you know, the Michael Jackson thriller. So when you look at making these songs these albums it's about making the strongest songs because we make it last forever they made almost 20 records for the album 20 tracks for the album you know but these eight were the ones that made it on the album wow. so it's really a lesson in quality over quantity yeah. because you don't have to have a lot of outtakes a lot of lost songs because sometimes yeah we want to hear those lost tracks what they sounded like but sometimes it's, it's a reason why they didn't make it on the album they might not have been as good they're great to hear yeah but the finished product that we see it's great yeah i mean the last one on on the album is um don't stop your love and and you know this is maybe a little bit more 80s stuff i don't i know teddy didn't he, he's not listed as a producer, but he's listed as doing keyboards and some drum programming on that. But it was it's 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 um it is it is one of one of my favorite ones on on there as well though. What's what are your thoughts about that? Because it's funky, it's a yeah. groove. Once again, he's just in the vein of doing whatever you know, doing a style of music that's out um in the eighties. It's just a groove. It's the anthem or whatever that is, and. You're hearing the the, the the unique sounds of the time that are in the record. You're hearing the keyboard. It's just a groove. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funky. And that's basically, when you look at albums back then, it wasn't like a grand marketing scheme. I'm going to pull this. I'm going to do this. You just do what feels good. You know, that record is extremely organic. You know, a lot of records coming after that up until now, sometimes they can be kind of contrived because everything is more... Um, I'll say it's more structured, but it's more contrived. People have a master plan of what they want to do. I want to put this on here, put this on here, get this guess, you know. But back then, it was extremely organic. Even when you listen to uh, him and Jackie McGee, very organic. Yeah. Because she's, she's in the record, but she's not all over the record. Mm. She's in certain, she's in certain pockets of the record. Yeah. It's great. I think I wish, you know, if anyone, um, uh, an interview that I wish you guys can, if I had to recommend one is um, Tammy Lucas, because she talks about growing up in Harlem and, and once she and Teddy connected, just going over to his place and send Nick's projects and just being around there. And then it's like, okay, we're recording this and just singing. And it it, it, it wasn't, and it's like, go to the studio singing. And, and that's how they were just all together creating history without thinking much of it. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we, we, we definitely do want to be able to have to give credit to because Teddy talks about, he, he you know, in those early days, he was just, he wrote the music well, uh, and Keith was the, the, you know, most of the people wrote the lyrics. But to give credit to Keith Swecker, I don't think, because when we think of Make It Last Forever, there's a lot of credit goes to Teddy for the production and, 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 and the music. 
And not enough has been said. I mean, you did it well today is about the lyrics, how the lyrics told a story. But that was all Keith Sweat. And I don't know if people respect Keith Sweat as 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 an influential lyricist, as a songwriter. I don't know if, if he gets that kind of credit. Because I, I up till today, I probably didn't really give him that, that credit and recognition as a songwriter. Well, I'll tell you this. Um, again, Keith is a little older. And he comes up in a different time in music. So what Keith is doing, Keith is importing all of the ingredients in classic R&B and he's dropping it into his music, but the music is still contemporary. Mm -hmm. So he's bringing romance. So if you look at everything that he's doing, Make It Last Forever sets the tone for what he does with every single album. So even though there's, you know, there's a lot of sexiness going on, but he has created a tradition of bringing in unknown female singers. He has a lot of well-known collaborators on his record, special guests. But if you notice, a lot of his songs, when he's doing Nobody and Twisted and One-on-One -on -one and all these records he's doing later, these are female singers that no one's ever heard of. So mm -hmm. he knows how to create the tension. I'll, I'll send some of those records to you offline. But he brings the tradition of what was in the past and he imports it in the record. So when you're listening to I Give All My Love to You, like I said, one-on-one, -on -one, and you you can you can catch the vibe. You can, mm -hmm. The romance is still there. Um, you can see the synergy and the passion of Rick James and Tina Marie on his female duets. Um, he keeps the groove. Mm -hmm. Keith Sweat has a voice that's similar to a lead singer of a guy named Slave. It was a funk band that was popular in the 70s and early 80s. It's like a nasal baritone. He has a unique baritone when he's singing. And the, the, the songs have that groove um, in a pocket groove. And that's consistent with a lot of his records. And uh, Just a Touch of Love on the Keith Sweat album was, was made by Slave and Steve Arrington. So that's a remake. So, so Keith is really good. I think he's the one, the vision for the album, obviously, Make It Last Forever. Lyrically, it's romantic. Um, it's funky and all these mm. different type of things. So at this point, Teddy is not the super producer at the time, but he's the one that's able to musically facilitate Keith Sweat's idea because Keith Sweat is like, yeah, I want these beats from you because he knows Keith Sweat is old enough to be steeped in the past but he's young enough to see what's around the corner. Mm. That's the best way to go ahead and kind of explain that. Yeah. And he stays on that. But if you look at him, he stays consistent with contemporary sounds, but he always keeps that traditional R&B component um, in it. You know, with later and later albums, his songwriting is kind of skewed to more of the contemporary side, the way they create music. But there's, a, there's still the romance in there. There's still the funk that's in there. And... All of those ingredients make make it last forever what it is. And, and, and you know that on the producer side, we're conditioned to be to pulling out a singular person. It's always been that way. We look at Michael Jackson, but without Quincy to kind of facilitate that, uh, that vision and do everything behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. Same with Prince. Without his, um, his cadre of musicians um, to be able to go ahead and reprodu reproduce those songs on stage, it's always a collaborative effort. Yeah, and unfortunately, sometimes credit 
is lost. And sometimes we can overly be focused on credit and not realize just really just soak in um, the music and appreciate it for what it is. But I like to just drop in um, Tammy Lucas, um, excellent songwriter, excellent singer. And her voice on those records, those Teddy Rowdy records, they really elevate the records. Yeah. You know, her songwriting, it's a very conversational type of songwriting. Her voice is very melodic, very easy on the air. So when you hear her do the backgrounds, um, I like to say when you look at Goodbye Love, Goodbye Love is almost like a Make It Last Forever to where you see her in the record. She's not all over the record. Yeah, yeah, very subtle. She's yeah. just in certain pockets of the record or whatever, but her presence is, is felt. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, got to give her a lot of respect because without her and people that we spoke of before, Bernard Bells, they kind of flesh out those productions. And they they turn they turn them, they transform them mm -hmm. from rhythm and beats to full-fledged songs as a result of their singing and songwriting contributions. Okay. Well, we're, we're, you know, we've got about a few minutes before we end up, but I just wanted to go through what my top five songs are sure. on Make It Last Forever. I mean, there's eight songs, mm -hmm. so it means three didn't really make the cut, but... Um, okay. Uh, I'll, I'll start with number five and, and Don't Start Your, start your Love. Um, mm -hmm. Number four was Make It Last Forever. Uh, number three was Right in the Wrong Way. Number two is I Want Her. And for me, my favorite song on the album is Something Just Ain't Right. I just, in fact, for a long time, that was my key, my ringtone on my phone. I think it still is. Um, just that those are my top five. What about yourself? You got it. Those are those are my favorite five. Um, the other ones are great, um, specifically the ballads that are like in the middle of the record. But uh, I think my favorite record out of all of the songs on the album Riding the Wrong Way is probably okay. yeah. number one. Uh, Something Ain't Right, Just Ain't Right is number two. Um, I want her, the album version. The album version is great. So yeah, when you yeah. play, the, it's, it's, it's about six minutes long. And it captures, it's elongated. Yeah. It really captures the groove and everything. So I want it is three, uh, The Rain. And I love the fact that uh, Don't Stop Your Love closes out the record. So the record closes out on the up-tempo vibe. Yeah, so it starts that, out on unique. the in-tempo yeah. vibe yeah. and it closes out. So when you look at a lot of components with, with, with music back then, um, sequencing was very important. All the details and things that we kind of overlook, we, we, we kind of know what it is sometimes, but we can't put our finger on it. Mm. But we know it feels good, it sounds good. All of those are major components that are kind of like a lost art. In contemporary black music sometimes because it's about cramming all these songs on there or we're trying to get all these guests mm -hmm. but i love the fact that the music frames keith sweat's musical identity perfectly so no matter mm -hmm. what else is going on his identity is at the forefront and that's why i i, I referenced those other albums that i said before because it kind of continues in that vein because the mark of a great producer is to create music that frames that particular artist yeah well, you know. well guys i want to thank you for uh, tuning in today um you know to another edition of the our new jack swing podcast which is really focusing on um, a lot of our new jack swing um last week we did the bobby album and, and this week is um the make it last forever so we'll you know we, we'll, we'll we'll be back um another another classic new jack swing album um 
but you know i really want to thank sheldon i mean can you give us the list that the the um your your your, your website where because you you've got a lot of amazing articles so people can can check that out although the, the, the link will be in the description but you can just share it again yes please go to sheldon taylor's souls of black notes at blogspot.com um, a lot of great um, essays and articles and whatnot that kind of are in the vein of what we're talking about now, kind of immortalizes and frames that history. Because so, a lot of, as the time goes by, you know, some of that stuff will be lost. You know, we don't see a lot of books on this stuff. We don't see a lot of uh, platforms that capture that. Sometimes the platforms are more on the salacious side. But Black music's greatest component is its cultural history and its relevance and its creativity. And all of the, the underside stuff is fun to hear, it's great to hear, but we also wanna look at it within its context because it gets, uh, has a longer effect. It's, it's more greatly respected. Last story, I wanna, um, the hook of the record makes the record strong. I remember being um, in Hawaii, listening to the Asian ladies sing the song. They couldn't sing all the rest of the songs, they didn't know the English. But I wanna, when that came out, they loved it. They loved the groove, but the hook, and that's the great thing about records when, you know, you got great hooks, those songs last forever. But I remember seeing the ladies, Asian ladies sing this record. They couldn't sing the rest of the lyrics. <laughs> but when it came to the hook, I wanna, they was all over it. <laughs> yes, I, I'm still, I still can't wait to get Keith Sweat on the show. He was supposed to have come. The day I was, I interviewed Don Robinson. It was the same night I was supposed to interview Keith Sweat, but I think it was like three in the morning. And by the time I'd finished my interview, ready to interview him, his team says he, you know he's already gone to bed. I think it was yeah. So, uh, and then since then we've been we've been missing schedules. But he is aware of the channel. Um, he um, he wasn't too happy with Timmy Gatlin's um, assertion that uh, over the making of uh, make you um make you sweat so um so hence he wanted to give his side of the story but um we'll, we'll get a chance <laughs> in due time but guys i want to thank you for, for for being for watching stuff and um we will um till next time and um this is me and and sheldon signing off take care thank you brother Jingling, baby. Go ahead, Daddy. You're jingling, baby. Go ahead.